1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today, Jessica Fonzo joins us to talk about her new book, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? from Johns Hopkins University Press. Jessica, if you would, uh, start us off by telling us a bit about yourself and how it is you came to write this book.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. Um, I am a professor at Johns Hopkins University. I'm a professor of global food policy and ethics, and I have training in nutrition. That's how I started off, but have uh, really become much more broad looking at the links between the kind of foods we grow, our diets, and its impacts on climate change. And that is really what my book, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet?, is all about. It's How is our food systems uh, faring? How are they producing the kind of foods that we want to eat that we should be eating? What are its impacts on human health and impacts on the planet? Terrific. So you you lay
1: out sort of three broad uh, problems we need to think about in the book, chronic and costly diseases, climate change, and then problems of economics so- and social inequality, and then proceed to, to help us think about how all of these things might be connected to each other. Uh, why don't we start with sort of, of basic questions of what is what is the state of health across the world? And what does food and nutrition have to do with it?
0: Yeah, so the the state of, of health is sort of a mixed picture. Um, COVID has not really helped in <laughs> making yep. that picture more beautiful in the sense. Um, we still have a significant number of hungry people in the world. And that number has been rising now for the last four years. And with COVID, and uh, the shock to the health system, it had impacts on every other system, including food systems. And so we're seeing more people struggle to get enough food and get access to food. So the numbers last year were about 690 million people were hungry. And this year it went up to 811 million people, which is incredible. And at the same time, you know, we still have, significant burdens of undernutrition overall, children who are chronically undernourished in some parts of the world, and a huge number of children and adults and teenagers who are overweight and obese, which presents a significant risk factor for non-communicable diseases. Although we're in the middle of a communicable disease pandemic, But these non-communicable diseases, things like heart disease, diabetes, stroke, we're seeing every country impacted by obesity and these non-communicable diseases. So it's not a great picture. And we often call it the double burden of malnutrition. The world is struggling with both undernutrition and overweight and obesity. And our diets play a huge role in that uh, malnutrition burden, not eating the right kinds of foods uh, with adequate nutrients, eating a lot of unhealthy, highly processed foods, high in sugar, salt, and fat that are cheap and tasty um, are significantly detrimental. And now diets have become the number one risk factor of disease and death in the world, which is incredible. More than smoking, more than air pollution, more than wildfire smoke, it's the diets that are are killing the world's population.
1: And so, so just to back up for two seconds, so that mm-hmm. that um, that undernutrition and obesity mm-hmm. uh, that often travels together within the same people in the same populations, correct?
0: Yeah, and it's 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 difficult to get your head around that, right? Because we yep. think. Well, someone's hungry, they're undernourished, they're underweight, they're starving. But there is hunger um, that can be in the same household and the same person where someone is suffering from obesity, but they're also food insecure and hungry at the same time. And the kinds of foods they can get ac- access to and afford tend to be these empty calorie junk food. Right. And, and that's obviously not nourishing um, And uh, it's very difficult to get access to the healthy diet. We know that about 3 billion people on the planet cannot afford a healthy diet, which is incredible. And there's a significant proportion of those people living in the United States, for example, along with every other region in the world. But, so you can be obese, and very food insecure. And we see that in the United States um, and for some households, particularly now with COVID and the economic impacts COVID has had on households.
1: Um, so let's hold on this for just a minute or two. Uh, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about uh, uh... It's sort of, sort of beyond the moral imperative, um, why, why, why should we care about such things? And I wonder if you might focus on consequences of childhood and undernourishment. Maybe tell little people a little bit about stunting and wasting, and how we should think about those and what those matter. Uh, and then maybe add in one last piece of this puzzle, which is uh, micronutrient deficiencies, and again, sort of how that plays out and what the larger consequences are.
0: Yeah. So, so stunting is being short for your age. So a child under the age of five is measured against world benchmarks and a child is, is when they are short for their age, they're considered to be stunted. That has significant effects besides just being short. It's a proxy for other uh, measures of cognitive development of poor immunity. And really, a, that child, if you do not intervene, the window shuts, and it's very hard for that child to to grow into their full potential of what they could be. And a lot of that is not just um, it being stunted in their bodies, but being stunted from in their brains as well. Wasting is acute malnutrition, what you see when There's seasonal hungers or a micro famine where children just don't get enough food and they're wasting away. Um, Micronutrient deficiencies is where you see uh, a person is deficient in certain vitamins and minerals, be it iron or zinc or calcium or vitamin D. And each of those nutrients have their own Outcomes that impact health and immunity, we know that micronutrient deficiencies are prevalent around the world with iron deficiency being the most significant, which can lead to uh, you know poor cognition, weakness, inability to focus. Uh, it's very debilitating to everyday life. All of these undernutrition indicators are measurements of a population's health. Children are an excellent marker for how a population is doing. And these undernutrition manifestations are incredibly costly for countries. Countries don't fully develop. They don't get on a path towards economic growth. Um, It's very costly for countries to have to treat undernutrition. It can cost governments 15 to 20% of their entire GDP dealing with undernutrition. So these kinds of manifestations of, of being undernourished, not having enough food, not having enough of the right type of food is costly for countries. At the same time as overweight and obesity is incredibly costly for health systems and for countries as well.
1: So let's now uh, uh, step out a bit and uh, talk a little bit about uh, food systems and Mm -hmm. start to make the connections here to climate change. So uh, so let me ask this in, in two very broad ways. Uh, how does modern agriculture systems contribute to climate change? Uh, and then uh, the, the sort of the feedback loop, how does climate change then affect modern food systems, which, of course, helps us understand some of the, 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 the health and nutrition outcomes that we're just talking about. So talk a little bit about sort of the modern industrial global food system and what that connection is to, to ongoing climate crises.
0: So yeah, so food systems are are made up of of how food is produced, how it's packaged, how it's processed, how it moves to retail environments. Those food systems and all the activities and actors that that are moving food through that system to what we now consume, um, is generating a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. It's having uh, significant water footprints, uh, nutrient runoff footprints, uh, deforestation issues. So in order to produce enough food to feed the world, it's having a significant environmental footprint. The global food system produces about 30% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not just energy in the transportation sector that's generating all of the greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming, rising sea levels, and climate, climate-related climate natural disasters. It's food systems and the way we are producing and raising food. Now, some of that comes from cattle. Cattle produce a lot of methane, a very toxic greenhouse gas. Um, but it's not just cattle. It's the entire... System. It's the fertilizers that we use. It's how we manage manure. It's how we manage land. It's how we manage forests, and and that deforestation, largely driven by agriculture and cattle, um, is significantly contributing to greenhouse gases and environmental degradation. So it's really and and interestingly, food systems are largely ignored in the COP, the climate. Change negotiations that happen every year, which is ironic being that they are such significant uh, contributors to global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, um, food systems are victims to climate change. They need those environments, right? they need they need sound ecosystems. they need, Water, they need biodiversity. We need that biodiversity to grow diff- lots of varieties of foods. So, food systems themselves, too, are very much reliant on, on environments and a sound, stable climate. And what we're seeing and what we will continue to see is that climate change will have impacts on our ability to grow enough food, particularly in the global south. Climate change is affecting the quality of the crops with declines in the nutrient composition of crops. And we are seeing significant collapse of biodiversity, uh, which gives us the range and varieties of foods, water shortages, and contributing to these climate-related natural disasters that are wiping out crops, droughts, floods. Extreme weather events that uh, will continue to churn as the as the world warms. Am, so, I, depressing? Am I depressing? Well, this? it's
1: it's <laughs> uh, it, you know no more than anything else that is going on in the United States or the world at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, it's. Um, it's daunting, right? I mean it's it it's daunting. it's this 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 huge extraordinarily large problem. And you know, part of one of one of the many challenges associated with it is that 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 there are good arguments to be made, yes, that it is that very sort of industrial nature of the global food system that allows us to feed as many people as we do, correct? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. The industrial Industrialization has been a blessing and a curse, right? This, right. Uh, if you look at the United States, these large scale monocrop cultures of, of crop cult- of culturing system has been quite detrimental to uh, some uh, environmental indicators. We've become very reliant on inputs, fertilizers, and pesticides to grow that amount of food, but it has fed not only the United States, but a significant proportion of the world and the animals that we then consume. So this industrialized production has been incredible technologically in just producing calories, but it's been detrimental to the environment and detrimental to diets because we don't Grow the varieties of and diversity of foods that should be on our plate. You know, we shouldn't be eating just corn and soy and, may, you know, rice and right. potatoes. So.
1: Um, So that's perfect. So let's use that as a segue to talk about what it is that we can do about this and to to fix some of these problems. Uh, Let's start at sort of the macro, the the policy level. Uh, What can be done at the international level and what can be done at the national level, in your opinion, uh, to begin to address some of these problems?
0: Well, I think we're already seeing it at the international level. There's a U.N. Food Systems Summit, September 23rd, that will be right at the time of the U.N. General Assembly, that will bring together all of the UN agencies, all of the member states of the United Nations to discuss what can we do to fix food systems. So this is a really important moment in the world to, to focus on food. Um, so that that at the international level has been important. And the UN agencies involved in food issues like the World Health Organization, like the Food and Agriculture Organization, they should continue to play a role in ensuring that their member states are considering food as part of their sustainable development plans and strategies. So that's happening. What's more difficult is governments and governments uh, taking uh, action and putting attention on food systems. When you look at countries, when you think about who governs and runs food systems, it's usually not governments. It's the industry, it's business, it's private sector. They're in the driver's seat of how our food systems are, are being shaped and, and who's getting access to food and what kind of food that uh, is being produced. Governments need to govern their food systems. They need to govern private sector. They need to help citizens in uh, being able to make better choices that they can afford. So there's a lot of things governments can do. Some will be kind of these hard policies regulating bad behavior by private sector, like don't market junk food to young children, um, you know, Ban trans fat and uh, very unhealthy fat in the food system, which has already been happening in the world. Um, Put easy-to-read labels on packages uh, for consumers. Provide guidance on on, on how to eat better as opposed to burying it in a dietary guideline that no one reads. (laughs) Um, So governments can do a lot in shepherding food systems in better directions for their citizens. And, and a lot of that is just around governing their food system, getting a handle on uh, um, who's doing what in their food system and ensuring that, um, they, that those that are working in food systems have both environment and public health goals in mind, not just profit. So to me, I think that there's very little happening in countries around uh, governing of food systems, and we really need governments to step up much more. What we're seeing a lot of action on is in cities, mayors are taking um, a lot of action to improve city municipal food systems, ensuring that they're more sustainable, that um, being better about reducing food loss and waste, using less plastic, um, getting more public messages out there about how their food choices are impacting the planet and impacting their health. So you're seeing a lot of really interesting innovation at the city level. So maybe that's something that at the national level, countries can aspire towards by looking at some of the cities in their own countries and what they're doing.
1: You also talk about the, the need for there to be more diversity in our farming systems, and what you refer to as nutrition-sensitive agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, well, what we're growing now does not really match what's on our plate. And so how do we reorient agriculture policies and farms that are supported by those policies to be more nutritious. Most of the land that's used to grow food, about 75% of it is growing 10 to 12 crops in the world, which is incredible. And most of that is the starchy staple kind of crops, some oil crops and sugar. And we don't see a lot of growth in fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts and seeds, some of the healthy components of a diet. So we, we really need to reorient agriculture policies, uh, trade policies to uh, be more uh, nutritious and aligned to what we want to see on people's plates. So, And that's a hard thing to do especially in places like the United States with the farm bill. It's very difficult.
1: Um, And also increasingly difficult going back to the question of climate change, because where today might be good geographic locations for growing a particular kind of more nutritious food may not be a place 10 years from now that is suitable for those crops, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So giving farmers you know, the tools and the trade to be able to, in places where they can grow horticulture like fruits and vegetables, giving them the tools to be able to adapt to climate change. We have a lot of evidence and we've had 40 years of warning about climate. (laughs) It's incredible the amount of evidence that's accumulated on climate. And we're just now waking up, but there's been a, a huge accumulation of evidence and solutions of how farmers can adapt to climate change, but they need assistance from governments. They need assistance from private sector to be able to make those uh, adaptations. But now's the time to do that. In 10 years, it's going to get a little bit too late as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report just talked about in, in their recent publication.
1: So you talked you, you made reference to the farm bill and there's you know an entire literature in policy studies and political science about the Department of Agriculture and its own particular <laughs> kind of, of functioning over over the decades. Do you I mean, you know as you talk about sort of national level changes, do you have any insight into practical ways to disrupt those existing power arrangements that that entrench those powers that are not in our collective interest?
0: Yeah, I think there's starting to be some examples of where you see the kind of David winning over the Goliath. I mean, a great example is in Chile where um government and civil society have really taken on private sector and um they they looked at what foods were considered unhealthy and basically put warning signs on the front of the label these black stop signs if they were high in sugar salt and fat and they even went further besides just warning consumers they regulated those foods. You can't sell them in a school or near a school. You can't advertise them on TV TV during uh, hours that children watch TV. So not only did they create basically these huge warning labels on the food, but they regulated that food and limited its sales. And that has been incredibly powerful for a few reasons. One, industry reformulated their foods to try to avoid that warning sticker. So they removed the sugar, they removed the salt, they removed the unhealthy fats. And it's, we, it's shown to be quite effective in that consumers that saw that warning label, there's been about a 25% reduction in purchases of those foods. So it's, that is an incredible story. And it's, you know, Chile is kind of leading the way. And, you know, we've got other stories of Mexico putting a soda tax. They were one of the first to do it. Um, We saw purchases of soda go down. So we're seeing these inklings of countries, a lot of them coming from Latin America (laughs) that are fighting kind of the, the the good fight and, and winning, which is really interesting.
1: Um, and you made reference earlier to mayors. This is a story in, in part of Michael Bloomberg's New York during his tenure mm-hmm. as mayor Absolutely. of New York. Soda taxes and um those, those trans kinds fat. Of, yeah, yeah, trans fats, yeah. menu labeling. Yeah uh, and seems to be, I mean that my my read you would know this better than I do. My read is that the evidence still seems to be all over the place, but generally pointing to the effectiveness of those kinds of interventions here, yes?
0: Absolutely. And even things like the Healthy Bodega Program, where people can use their SNAP benefits in some of the corner stores to purchase healthy foods at a subsidized price. So these kind of things are really um, they're they're great pilots, either country or city pilots. We just need governments to pay attention to them and scale them up on a on a grand scale. <laughs>
1: Um, so let's, uh, as we work our way toward concluding, Jessica, why don't we talk a little bit, move away from sort of the policy area um, to talk a little bit about, about what uh, kinds of individual level changes you think can be uh, effective, again, both in terms of thinking about individual and community health uh, and in terms of, of carbon footprint and, and contributing to uh, the climate crisis.
0: Yeah, I I would say there's maybe four things a a consumer could do. One is think about the kinds of foods that you waste at the household level and why you're wasting food. And there's lots of ways to change that. Um, Not buying so much that you don't see the back of your refrigerator. (laughs) And don't stock up food, you know, for the next, nuclear war because it probably won't happen and have a whole storage unit of food you probably don't need that sorry i just
1: love the probably it's like well we don't want to
0: rule it (laughs) out given the times we live in exactly (laughs) another you know thing to do is is because the waste is huge right we're wasting about 30 percent of all the food that's produced in the world another is to eat more plant-based foods um you know, maybe don't eat red meat at every meal. <laughs> you don't have to be a vegan, but it's not necessary to eat meat at every meal. You don't need it for human health reasons. And it's not great for the planet. So um, try other cuisines that are more vegetarian based, like Indian food or Thai food. Um, if if it's, if it's hard to just boil broccoli and, and uh, that doesn't taste so appealing for some people, but There's lots of other cuisines that are very kind of vegetarian-based that are delicious to try and start consuming more of those. Um, Also, from from kind of a community perspective, but also linking more to farming, get to know your local farmers. And there's lots of, everyone's growing food in almost every part of the world and getting to know some of those farmers, particularly if they're, um, you know, that they've been around for a long time and they've been producing food, get to know some of the elderly farmers, get to know the young farmers, get to know black farmers that are, have, have farms right nearby you and support them. And I think one thing we learned during COVID is this idea of, of gardens, either, you know, get involved in a local garden or local food bank or, Uh, food community service. Those have been really important in COVID, not so much for improving nutrition, but more about social cohesion and almost a food justice approach of Mm -hmm. kind of taking back, (laughs) taking some ownership and feeling this tangible um, kinship with other community members who are growing food. And I think that's something that's, um, you know, Really important from a social cohesion point of view and, and supporting your local community. So if you if you don't have enough room to grow your own garden, there's a lot of these community gardens to get involved in. Um, that can be really rewarding to just uh, be able to grow some tomatoes over the summer. You know, grow some some squash in the fall. There's something very rewarding about doing that and and giving back to your community.
1: And jumping off from there, Jessica, you also suggest that, that people look for opportunities to, to to band together, to mobilize, and then to advocate for change at the, the local and national level. Can you talk a little bit about what that might look like for people? What are the things that they might do to, to, to jump into that arena?
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot going on right now around food banks, uh, food support services, um, locally and and i we've really seen that with covid so supporting um, whether y- you belong to a church or you belong to um, certain community groups supporting some of those food related initiatives is is really important right now because we're going to continue to see a lot of food insecurity over the next 24 months particularly if this delta variant kind of rolls on, and uh, you know people are still uh, not able to fully go back to work in the capacity that they were before early twenty twenty. So um, there's lots of ways to get involved in these community service. A lot of it does center around food, <laughs> either cooking food or distributing food or uh, growing food, but um, lots of ways to get involved um, in, in your community and, and particularly for if you can get young children involved early on in, in life and they get a taste of what it's like to grow food. It, it can be completely transformative for them throughout their life.
1: You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Jessica Fonzo, who's been talking about her new book, Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet?, and I'm going to go ahead and put words in her mouth and say the preliminary answer is yes, it can. <laughs> uh, Jessica, so cool. thank you. Right? <laughs> uh, and then if you pick up the book and read through it, you can find out how, the ways in which you can contribute to that enormously important and very complicated process. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks for having me.